Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Eating Crow Podcast. Here's your host, Pete Durand. Hey folks, welcome to another dynamic episode of Eating Crow with Pete Durand. I have chef extraordinaire Todd Weebush on the call with us today. Todd is an old friend, uh, a staunch supporter, and uh, one of the smartest people I know. And, and Todd has an angle that we're going to drill out into that we've never had on this program. But for those listening, uh, this is the podcast you want to pay attention to because you're probably going to learn more than anyone we've had. Todd, uh, welcome. And uh, why don't you share kind of where you are today and we'll drill down into I think the 10 or 12 eating crow moments you documented for me <laughs> and talk about them. This is great. Well, uh, thanks Pete. Great to see you. Great to be here. Thanks for the kind introduction. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it'll hold up uh, after everybody hears about the crow that, that I've eaten over the years. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will. So tell me about, you know, your, tell me about CHMG capital, kind of what, what the focus there is. We'll get to some of the details of investments, but how did you arrive at this particular I guess we'll call stage in life and career. Yeah. So let me, let me, let me give you the full background. It'll be short, but it'll help make sense. So I started my career in banking three years, went back to graduate school, uh, got out of graduate school, was just looking for a general management job <clears throat> up in home healthcare and have been there in some form or fashion ever since uh, 97. I met my partner in Atlanta and um, they had a, a, a small startup up here in Charlotte. And so I came up, came up to run that. We built that up and sold it. Uh, 2005. Uh, along the way, we had started an, an HR outsourcing company that we sold to ADP in 2010. Um, started Sabo, the stroke rehab product company that, it, that, that we're still invested in. Um, yeah. um, and then, you know, some various other angel investments along the way that, uh, that I got into. And then, I, so that's about 80% of my time. I spent about 20% of my time on uh, investment, small venture capital fund in Finland. Um, and then we're, we're actually in the process of trying to raise a real, a real fund right now. So back and forth to Finland when, when Americans are allowed to travel. Well, see, uh, based on that part of the bio, it sounds like you've been nothing but successful all your life, Todd. Yeah. Just mountaintop to mountaintop, Pete. That's, that's how it is for, that's how it is for everybody. So a little background when I asked Todd to, uh, to join, join the podcast, he, he kind of smiled and he said, why? <laughs> And then he he described um, your are you you do some guest lecturing is at UNC right? I've done some yeah not a lot but some yeah. And apparently when Todd's introduced he he the the professor goes through his resume which you've heard is pretty impressive but then he has this thing called his his anti bio. And Todd has listed here and I've got him counted here eleven or twelve utter failures and described them in gory detail and the crow he ate along the way which I will tell you. I think this is uh, one of the reasons I'm endeared to Todd in such a fashion. He, he understands the grind of an entrepreneur, right? And most entrepreneurs that are successful, you often don't hear the two or three six, un, you know, unsuccessful initiatives they had behind them. It's only, and that, by the way, that's why I started this podcast. Um, I'm one of the more unsuccessful entrepreneurs you'll ever meet. <laughs> I, have a, I have some passion. I like what I do, but 
you know, you see the best version of everyone on LinkedIn. You see the best version of everyone's social media. Uh, when people are at cocktail parties, they don't talk about the shit show that was their life before they made a lot of money. Absolutely right. And where the hard lessons are, are in those shit shows are the moment you realized, I got to rethink this. I got to eat a little crow. Potentially, that's somebody serving me or that I've yeah. served up for myself. So, Todd, what, one of the... Uh, one, the first one you have listed here, I think, is fantastic. Your first job as a banker, you, you created a bunch of loans that ultimately had to be written off because they were uncollectible. Yeah but, yeah, but I got off to graduate school before I got caught. So Perfect, right? So <laughs> you, realized, you realized where it was headed and got out. And then this is great. You said you spent, spent a semester partying with your new bride in Caracas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Best six months of my life. Or the best six months of my life. How, how often do you have to remind your wife that at some point you had really good six months? Honest, honest to God, Pete. So we were just married a couple months, probably three or four months. And my wife is from Hickory, North Carolina, and had barely left the state of North Carolina, much less never left the country. Wow. So I spoke Spanish, but she did not. And, you know, my, my, (laughs) she's not in the room, so I can tell this joke. She hates it. You know, know, the two toughest years of marriage, right? First one and the one you're in. Correct. And so... (laughs) So we had a rocky first few months, and, and I still maintain that had she had the language skills and confidence to get in a cab and go the hour and a half from where we lived in Venezuela down to the airport to fly home, we wouldn't be married today. Um, but we got through the first three months, and then we had a, we had a great time. That is, uh, that's sage advice, by the way. And, you know, I, I think it's funny when, when you look back at your, at your life partner, Yep. And uh, they can get through those times with you. Uh, and by the way, they're also the best people to remind you that you probably should eat some crow. Absolutely. Absolutely. It pisses me off sometimes, but I'm like, thank God I've got you to, you know, tell me how shitty I am or how. Uh, I've got three. <laughs> and you, you, you've got some, I've got some grown kids now that tell me the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're starting yeah. a podcast. What are you, an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, from there, you know, you went to grad school. Uh, yep. And then you ended up in Connecticut. Connecticut. Yep. Cold, snowy, far away, expensive Connecticut, where at least the people aren't very friendly. No offense to you, Connecticut listeners, if there are any. Well, you, you mentioned your wife is from Hickory, which, by the way, if you live in North Carolina, is pronounced Hickory. 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 Yeah. So uh, I can imagine bringing somebody who's grown up in this climate to Connecticut was a bit shocking. So I, I literally, Pete, I hated it as much as she did. We. Mm-hmm. And, and um, our first winter, everybody had, we had warned us about how horrible it was going to be. And our first winter, we got you know, toward, towards the end of the winter, and I was saying to one of the neighbors, said, yeah, man, that, that really sucked. And uh, the guy said, kidding me? That's the mildest winter. <laughs> Waiting so, for that. Yeah. Uh, the third year, I, I was out of there. Uh, from, for our anniversary, I gave my wife a copy. Uh, so our anniversary is in February. I gave my wife a copy of the listing contract where I'd put the house for sale. I said, but don't put a sign in my front yard because I didn't have a job to go to. But I said, right. no way are we spending another year up here. And fortunately, we got the, got the house sold and moved to Atlanta. You know, we moved from uh, Charlottesville, Virginia when I worked at GE to <clears throat> Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yep. Ann Arbor is a great town, actually. We, we, it's a great college town, met a lot of great friends there, but we're from the Midwest. We're from, you know, Wisconsin. Sure. So we knew what we were getting into, but our kids didn't. 
and they were little. I mean, they were, you know, uh, a newborn and five and eight years old. And, and I think it was February of the first year we're there and my five-year-old son looks outside and says to me, daddy, when will it be sun again? <laughs> and I did the same thing. We ended up moving back to, to Raleigh. I had some co-investors uh, in Michigan that were invested in some companies in Raleigh. I didn't have, I, I ended up working remotely from Raleigh from Michigan. We moved down to take care of my wife's parents, but um, you know, same thing. We would, we would never leave North Carolina and no offense to anybody in the, the colder regions. My whole family's still in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, but so you, you know, in Atlanta, uh, you, you rent, you started this, uh, this new home health care company. This is, I think when it's interesting, when I look at your anti-bio things started to really get interesting, you know, where, where you started to get into the meat of it in some of these businesses, you're truly an entrepreneur for the first time. Uh, at what point did you, you know, and you went through some challenges. Tell us about, you know, how the market took a turn just as you guys did this and you were really kind of in survival mode. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was after we left Atlanta, came to Charlotte. I met my partner down there. We, we spent 10 months getting to know each other at the Waffle House on Northridge Boulevard. And they had this company to, to spin out, small spin out startup company here in Charlotte. And, you know, if, if you know, you know, healthcare reimbursements, you know, you, you live and die by the, the Medicare changes. And right after, right after we Bought a lot, started a house, got moved up here, get the kids settled. The uh, Medicare changed. And I mean, literally, we were on the phone. Mike and I, my partner, were, would be on the phone with consultants and lawyers trying to figure out, you know, what, what do these changes mean for us? Do we even have a business to, to go forward? And, um, and so after, I don't know, you know, month month of trying to figure this out, you know, Mike says, all right. Uh, Mike was the majority majority partner and my boss at the time. He said, "Look, we, we just gotta we just gotta hunker down, you know, figure out how to survive, and come out on the other side of this thing." <clears throat> and um, and and so that's exactly what we did. We you know we cut as many costs as we could. You know, there, there's an old joke among healthcare services: two guys running from the bear. The one guy looks at and says, "What are you What are you running? So you know, what are you running from? You can't outrun the bear. So I just have to outrun you." Right. And that, that was really the environment we were in then, survive. So out of that, uh, we did survive, and we had a little bit of capital from Mike's previous, uh, previous exit. So that, even that little bit of capital was enough to really launch the company. We were able to pick up, pick up company dimes on the dollar. Uh, we were able to go into new markets where, <coughs> excuse me, where, where people had, had to shut down or went bankrupt. And so out of that came a, you know, a company that grew 47% compound annual growth for seven years before we sold. Wow. Yeah, between same store sales, DeNovo, and, and acquisitions. So, you know, it was it was great advice. It's advice I give the entrepreneurs that, that I work with today in our fund in Finland, some of the angel investments. You can just figure out how to survive, live to fight another day. Something something good will happen. What were the first, what were, if you're going to give that entrepreneur that's going to face that, and by the way, I've gone through I've gone through 2001, I've gone through 2008, 2009, yep. and you know, and what we're dealing with right now. So if you're going to think of three things to tell any young entrepreneur or business leader to get through that, what are the first three things they do? So the, the first thing, and, and in my opinion, most important thing always, always, always is be transparent and upfront with your investors. Sure. Um, you know, your in, investors will hang with you if they believe in you and they believe in the in the, in the company and the concept of the market uh, because they've all been through stuff like this before. Sure. A lot of first time entrepreneurs have not. So, 
you know, be transparent, um, you know, stay close to your customers. Yeah. Do just figure out whatever it takes to survive. Mm-hmm. A lot of us were going through that with, with COVID. I sure. mean, I don't know about, about you or your listeners, but I was, I was, it was, it was a scary time back there in March when you're a, you know, a business owner, entrepreneur, investor, and you're up there without a, without a safety net. So it was, it was, and, and advice, you, you know, I think the first two weeks, everybody's just trying to gather information Yep. and yep. transparency is key. The other thing that I would add in the third one, which I think you'll, you'll drill down more into is cut where you don't think you can cut great. costs where you don't think you can, because you can. Great, great point. Uh, I've learned that lesson over the last four months. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. It's, our, our, our management team has started this process of, hey, we got we to gotta take some time and really analyze what have we learned over the last few months because there have been some great lessons learned. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think the sooner you do it, communicate that to your teams, to your employees. And the communication is, we're, especially this time around, no one knew it was going to happen in four months. So our message was, we just need to extend our runway. Yep. We're going to yep. take these actions. This gets us through August. And then in July or June, we'll reassess. That might have to get us through September, and it could be tough. But this yeah. just in, right? Every day. Yeah, it was. It was again for I'm sure for you guys, for us, it was. We got to raise as much cash as we can find mm-hmm. because we don't know how long this is going to last. Uh, we don't know what it looks like on the back end. So, um, if, and as a result, we have more cash kind of sitting around today than we've had in a long time. You know, it's interesting. We, we made some aggressive cuts as well. And then your second point, we got close to our customers. Yeah. We called every single, we have hundreds and hundreds and we have thousands of customers. We called them all. Wow. And, and the message was, we're here. What can we do yeah. to help? That was it. In some yeah. situations is, can you waive our fees? Can you put us on pause? Whatever. And we did all those things. And now we're going back around and customers are starting to re-engage, but there is no playbook for this. Like you said, yeah. it's interesting. You guys are doing a little bit of a, a look back to develop this playbook. Right. Right. Cause this, you know, these things could come up again. You never know. I mean, you know, you, you and I, I've got a little more gray hair on me than you do, but it's <laughs> something, something really, really cataclysmic happens about every 10 years. Yep. So we got COVID 10 years ago, we had the, the financial crisis. Uh, 2001 was the, the, you know, the dot-com stock market crash. Yep. You know, you, you can go back about every 10 years seems like something really, really bad happens. And people come out of it. You know, the businesses look different. They're designed to be different. But there are some parts of this market that have done incredibly well the last six months. Yeah. And yeah. some parts that are still struggling. It's, it's shocking. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the best thing that happened to us was the Medicare changes back in 1998, 99, because it forced us to, to get lean focus on growth. And um, then we came out of it like a, like a freight train. When you, uh, when you think about some of the lessons you've learned along the way, Todd, are there books or mentors or peers that you learned from, or was a lot of it just on the job training? You know, I, I had a guy that I worked for, I mean, I've, I've had some great bosses. Okay. And actually I don't, I don't think I've had a, what, what I would call a bad boss. Wow. Um, Lucky you. Yeah, yeah, I have been. I mean, I've had, I've, I've been, I've been lucky in every aspect of, of my life, honestly. If, uh, I look back, 
I, I do remember one boss. Uh, I was a young general manager, probably 28, 30. We lived up in Connecticut. This was back in the day when, you know, when you could smoke in the office. And sure. Smoke there. So we're in, we're in his office and, and uh, uh, we're talking about budgets. And he's sitting there and he's got his feet up on the desk and he's got his, his ashtray sitting here in his lap and he's smoking a cigarette and, and he's telling me I got to have 15% growth in this office, this one office that we had. I, I think I was over 10 or 12 offices. I looked at him, I said, Bob, we got 47 or 48% market share in this. I mean, I can't grow 15%. And he, and he so he's got his feet up and he takes a long draw on his cigarette, reach down there and get the phone book out. Okay, I get the phone book out. Turn to the home respiratory pages. And so I do it, and I know where it's going. Yeah. Count, count, the, count the other companies. Count them. Need another draw on his cigarette, and he leans across the desk and looks at me and says, you can grow 15% a year until every one of those MRFers are out of business. <laughs> wow, the Bill Belichick of home respiration. Yeah, that is not my management style, but... Um, um, but no, I've had some great bosses. Probably the guy that I've learned the most from and, and benefited in, in life, honestly, the most from is my, my partner from Atlanta, Mike. Okay. Yeah, we've been, I told you, we got to know each other at the Waffle House. You know, Mike, Mike is a super, uh, he's just a great guy, great person, great family guy, great businessman, uh, great philanthropist, um, a great friend to, to me and my family. So, I mean, he's, he's, he has been probably the, the single most influential uh, non-family non member for me. So I, uh, it, it's interesting. A couple of the other success stories we're having on the show have a similar type relationship, right? Where there's someone they got to know early in their career and they have maybe not all the time, but consistently come back to work together. Um, yep. And it, there's a high level of trust there. We, we did our, we did our first agreement um, where he gave me equity in the company. The, you know, we, we had it in writing, it was on, but it wasn't a legal document. Um, and, and both of us comment on this. I mean, our, our deal was a handshake deal mm -hmm. until it looked like we were going to sell the company and we were like, holy cow, we better get this document. Uh, but, but, you know, both of us speak to how important that was to, to uh, each of us that, hey, we had, we had a handshake deal. And we've always kind of had a handshake deal uh, or handshake understanding, even on a couple of things that we're working on today. Sure. We'll get them papered at some point, but it doesn't matter with, uh, at least with him and me. And, and, and I know with him and some of his other. Yeah. I've got a couple of folks like that in my life that uh, I, I trust to at all times work their tail off and do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, the, the definition for me of a good partner is somebody who's willing to put my interests in front of them and, and vice versa, that I'm mm -hmm. willing to put, put my interests and in, uh, their interests in front of me. I mean, you know, life's short and good partners are hard to find, so you want to you wanna keep them around for the long term. Yeah, yeah and there are uh, thousands of examples where that didn't go well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All, in some of our portfolio companies in Finland, we've had... <laughs> Had some blowups, so yep. So, so tell us about Finland. How did that start? Man, it's all Yana's fault. <clears throat> so I went to I went to college uh, at Davidson, and one of my best friends there, uh, a guy named Will Cardwell, and he came to to marry a Finnish girl. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I learned when we lived in Venezuela was if 
people that came to visit us in Venezuela got a, got a way more authentic experience than people that go and stay at the big hotels down here. Sure. So I said, any chance I get to go visit a friend in another country, I'm going to do it. So Will was back in graduate school at Helsinki in 92. And that was my first trip over. And, um, and so Will, Will kind of makes his way into the early stage uh, consulting, professoring, venture capital, um, uh, and has been there so for, you know, 20 years, 20 plus years. So when we sold our company in 05, I started going a little bit more regularly. He and I had done some angel investing uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, of course, of course, we got in right before the bubble uh, burst, so, you know, lost a lot of money there. Some crow. Yeah. Yep. Cold crow, too, by golly. Yeah. Yellow crow, yellow crow. Yes. Anyway, um, uh, so so fast forward. He had always wanted to start a fund, and he's super plugged in, a uh, really smart guy. And so we got this uh, micro fund, a few million euros, with friends and family and family offices started in 2016. And so for about three years there, four years, I was going to Finland four or five times a year, spending uh, you know 50, 60 nights a year you know, vetting these early stage wow. digital health wellness and tech companies. And when you think about business in Finland and entrepreneurship, how are they, are they as evolved in the view of entrepreneurship versus where we are in the U S I mean, this has been a, uh, a bit of a rite of passage and kind of a cool thing to do in the U S for a long time. How about, you know, the Finnish market? Is it, so, you know, without going into giving, giving you a history lesson, but when Nokia blew up back in whenever it was, I mean, that was a, that was a, a huge recession for Finland. Nokia blew up about the time the oil, oil crashed and Russia is Finland's second or third largest trading partner. Wow. So all of a sudden, you know, you, you had this double or, or triple whammy. And so the Finnish government was very, very prudent with their debt. Uh, so they had the capacity made a huge investment in, into entrepreneurship. Okay. Ecosystem development. So, so for example, my first time in 2005, my, when I really started going and getting to know more, more people, kids coming out of college wanted to go work for Nokia, be an engineer and work in the big company and travel around the world. And it was really prestigious. It was, you know, it was Google. It was Google Apple, yep. one. Depends. Um, you know, what the Finnish government realized was they, they got to create a hell of a lot of jobs. And so they've really made, made some, made some big investments in entrepreneurship. So across the Nordics on a per capita basis, there's more unicorns than any place else in the world. Wow. People think of Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Norway as these socialist places. And I, I, I try and disabuse them of that notion because, you know, we've, we've got uh, hundreds of millionaire Family office with hundreds of millions is an investor in our fund. I mean, they're, they're, they're capitalists. Mm -hmm. They have a better social safety net than we do. Got it. That's an interesting comment, a capitalist with a social safety net. So uh, they're growth-minded, but they've got more government-backed support. Uh, healthcare, I'm, I'm assuming, is one of them, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So yep. Finland spends 9.5% of GDP on healthcare. We spend 18. Hmm. Now, again, some of that is because they have a, a, a fantastic education system. They have a 
better unemployment benefits. They've got uh, the healthcare is free, so everybody's insured. So there, there's some reasons, and, it, and it's look, it's a country of five and a half million people. So right. it's really not fair to compare, you know, the, the big messy United States with a, a homogeneous population of five and a half million people. But sure, there are things that we can. Sure, absolutely, there are. When you think about um, the impact your different career moves and starts and stops have had on your family, what's what's the biggest moment? in the past 30 years where you felt like you had to make a change for your family. I know leaving Connecticut was one of them, but at yeah. some point did, did you, did you look back? You said your wife is really good about giving you feedback. How important has that been in, in how you solve problems in your, in your career as well? Um, you know, so let me, let me, let me tackle that first. So one of the great things about my wife is, uh, you know, I've heard one of your other guests say, you know, your strengths are your weaknesses. One of the great things about my wife is she, she was a nurse and all she really, her goal was to take care of people and raise a family. Got it. And so if, if she was home right now and, and you said, Hey, Pam, tell, tell me what Todd does for a living. You wouldn't get a great answer. Right. <laughs> my wife would, my wife would have a, a similar answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, she's got really good instincts about people. And so that she's been the most helpful to me in business is what did you think about so-and-so or such and such? And like, don't trust him or great, great person. And she's usually right. So it's interesting that you say that, uh, I would have to, and, and maybe this is a genetic, maybe it's a gender thing. My wife has an incredible radar for people. Yeah. And I stopped, by the way, I stopped ignoring it. <laughs> right. I had, uh, I had a situation where, you know, I had hired an executive and it, and her radar went up yep. big time, yep. came to the interview process, you know, phenomenal, everything checked out. And, and her thought was, mm -mm. she was right yeah. <laughs> in, in yeah, a big way. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, by the way, I think I had seconds. At that, at that, that table. So I, I've just stopped ignoring it. And by the way, I, I, like you, I probably spend more time saying, why do you feel that way? Or what is it that I'm missing? And I've learned from it. And, you know, I think that uh, in a lot of leadership positions, we have two very strong women on my, on my senior staff right now. And they're very intuitive when it comes to culture. A couple of them are some of the best operators I've ever worked with in general, but I think they're, I think they, uh, they fundamentally treat people differently. And I think they have an advantage because people want to follow them. Yeah, I, I agree. I've been fortunate. Uh, I've actually had more, well, not more women bosses, but I had a really great woman boss when I was in banking. Mm. Uh, and, and banking and healthcare both tend to be more, more have more women in, uh, in management. Yep. So you know, I've, been, I've been fortunate. I've had a lot of really great women on the management team. Chief Operating Officer of CHMG when we sold it, mm -hmm. uh, co-founder of HR Excel was a was a really dynamic woman. So, um, and and look, it, it it makes a difference in business. Sure, and having that having that whether it's a, a woman or somebody from another country or a minority, having that perspective around the table is is good business. Um, we we really we really value that in the companies, uh, particularly the companies that we invest in through the venture capital. Fund. You know, uh, one of my last guests is a certified diversity and inclusion expert, wow. which 
I don't think that even existed until recently, that level right. of certification. So we, we ended up talking about that at the end of the podcast, and it was interesting because I think when people hear diversity or inclusion, they react one of two ways, typically polar opposites. There are very few people who are somewhere in the middle, and Don's point was exactly what you just described. He said, what I'm getting at is when I, and he helps companies figure out how to do this. He goes, what I'm getting at is the more unique perspectives you have around the table, gender, you know, whatever it is, uh, nationality, race, orientation, you're going to get people who think differently as a customer, as an operator, as a team member, and ultimately you're going to get to a better decision. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's a very different way of thinking things, right? I mean, I asked him, I said, how do you, how do you implement that? Because there are people that make that feel like it's a quota. And he said, it's not a quota. It's a different way of recruiting. You have to make sure that you've recruited a big enough audience in the recruiting process, then hire the best candidate, period. We're, we're going through exactly that right now. So I told you we're trying to raise this bigger fund in, in, uh, in, in Finland. And we need a, we need a, so all, all the partners are American. Mm -hmm. The two guys in Finland, me, Dan on the West coast. And so, so we need to find a Finnish or Swedish partner. And I said, guys, you know, God, I don't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to be politically incorrect or whatever the right term is, but we, we need a woman on it. Right. We, we we're, we're four, we're four white guys over 45. Yeah. You know, we need some diversity. So, Anyway, it's, we'll be a better team if we can find that. Yeah, I think, like you said, the perspective it brings to the table, the different thought process in the decision-making area. And sometimes it's hard statistically to find, you know, someone with diversity, a very specific skill set, because not a lot of people have gone into that trade or profession or whatever it is. So it becomes more challenging. Absolutely. Um, but then I think you need to be a little more creative on who you bring to the table. Fortunately, the interview slates that I'm seeing for a lot of the roles, I'm seeing a lot more diversity than I used to see. Good. You know, people are, they're sticking their neck out. They're trying different things. They're uh, not afraid of, of what they bring to the table. Yeah. Um, and I, and I don't, I don't think the country certainly right now is aware of the fact that there is a lot more good things going on than bad. Yeah, no, that's right. The, the, the good news doesn't sell advertising. Correct. Right. It really doesn't. When you think about um, building a team and most of these companies you guys are investing in are based in Finland, correct? Yeah. The ones in the fund are. Yeah. And how is diversity handled in a Finnish company? It, it, it's, it's not even a consideration. Interesting. It's barely a consideration. Okay. Particularly among the under 40 generation. Um, Finland is always ranked at the top in terms of gender equity. Okay. You know, you, you probably don't know, but they've got the youngest, uh, youngest prime minister in the world and she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Four-year-old social democrat, and a lot of her cabinet is is younger women. Um, that of a female president, um, Tarja Tarja something a few years ago. So it, it's it's it's. I mean, I've, I've got friends in Finland, single single friends who who say that the girls get pissed off at him if they like hold the door for him or offer to buy him a drink. Interesting. Um, now minorities in Finland are. Are less less equal than um, uh, than than the women. Okay, it's, I think that's a historical thing. They're just I mean, there's just not a lot of minorities in, in Finland to, to begin with. Um, they have recognized that 
a population of old white people uh, is not sustainable into the future. And so they not only that they've, they've got incentives for, for families to have more kids, but they're also opening up to more, um, more diversity, more immigrants. Okay. And they do a really good job of assimilating them. And you just don't read about the problems that some countries have in, in assimilating immigrants. Interesting. So it, it, their fear comment that it's not even an issue from a gender perspective is really uh, something sure people aren't probably aware of. Yeah, for sure gender. And, I, and that's, that's true across the Nordics, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Iceland. Got it. When, you, uh, when you're looking for, whether it's in the U.S. in an investment or in, over in Finland, and I'm going to channel this last question towards entrepreneurs as they're listening to the show who inherently are going to move into leadership roles, whether they've had that experience or not. What are the three characteristics? And I'm really interested in your answer because of the history you've had with good quality bosses, et cetera, right? Good quality yeah. leaders. What are the three characteristics that Todd looks for in backing uh, an entrepreneur or a CEO? Um, so again, first, first, always most important deal breaker fit in there is, is trust. Okay. Got to, got to completely believe that that person is honest and trustworthy and will tell you, tell you the good news and the bad news. Cause there's, there's going to be bad news. Sometimes there's not a lot of good news, uh, but there's definitely, definitely a lot. Um, you know, I, I suppose the, another one is we've got a, an investor in our fund and a friend in Finland who they, they sold their company and their, their investment vehicle is called the no asshole company. <laughs> um, literally that's how it appears in the cap table. That's awesome. No and so, so that, that sort of speaks for itself. Um, you know, and I guess the, the third thing is you, you want a level of energy and competent believability and, and, and you know, thinking that that person will do whatever it takes to be successful. And yeah. that is the, I mean, you had, you had that arrival, you've still got it. Um, and, and honestly, that's one of the things that just, that energizes me so much about, uh, you know, about investing, whether that's in the United States, uh, a restaurant, I'm invested in a stupid, it's not a stupid restaurant. It's a great restaurant, but the passion that, that, that Ken has for the business is it's remarkable. I mean, I, I sort of wish I had that, that passion for something. Sure. You know, when I look at people and say, man, they are just 150% engaged and they are, they are going to succeed or literally almost die trying. That, that was a long third characteristic, but that's, that's, so a little bit for our, our listeners, you and I have a history, right? So I can tell people that I've seen you, I've seen you filter with all three of those, right? So um, you and I established trust over a long period of time of working together and you gave me the feedback. And by the way, my background is, I'm an engineer, right? So I have a lot of analytical operational stuff, but I am inherently a passionate sales and marketing dude, right? Yeah. So the feedback I received from, from you and one of my previous investors is, I'm always identifying the problem and moving on to the solution, right? So what I needed, one of my, one of my weaknesses is I didn't spend enough time in the problem explaining it to my investors and peers. Like, look, we need, if it's a shit turd, put it on the table. It's a shit turd. We need to smell it and taste it and talk about the shit turd. I know Pete, you're already on the solution, but you just dropped a shit turd on the table. 
So let's talk about it so we can build some trust that we've actually talked about it. So that's yeah. really good advice, right? And, and kind of, you know, nobody likes to pick it apart, but sometimes you got to pick it apart and see what's in there. I, I it was, it's, it's one of, it's. So by the way, I, I think I overindexed at one point where I, I spent a little too much time in the shit turn. People are like, oh, you got to move on. I'm like, I'm already there, but I, I thought you wanted no. So right, the, uh, the no asshole thing I love because we've both been in an organization where we have worked with some people who, yeah, clearly were uh, in that more on that side of the fence. Yeah. That is physically draining for everyone. And, Absolutely. you know, and whether, by the way, in some situations that those people have been right. I mean, objectively speaking, the data is the data. I, I didn't perform. Something wasn't going well. No question. We got to get into it. Right. But as soon as, and by the way, this is a really important takeaway for an entrepreneur. And I'm going to give Todd a little bit of a plug here. Even in the good times and the bad times, especially the bad times, I never felt like Todd was on the other side of the table. He was always on my side of the table saying, Pete, I'm in this with you. We'll do what we need to do. We will get after it. You held me accountable, but I never felt like we ever entered a conversation or room where we weren't trying to drive towards the same conclusion. Yeah, that, I, I appreciate that. That's, um, yeah, it's, it's all about getting, getting a good result, not, not assigning blame or credit. Mm-hmm. When things go well, there's plenty of credit to go around. And, you know, when things go bad, there's, uh, you know, Typically, the entrepreneur to point to. <laughs> no, yes and no. I mean, the the good ones always take it that way. Yep. The ones that that don't, you know, will blame somebody else. But the, the good ones will always say, you know what? At the end of the day, yeah, this is my responsibility. You have to own it. To yeah. figure it out. And and by the way, that does generate trust, right? Absolutely. And it, then you move on to the solution quicker. So, uh, you know, there's no reason I, I, I have been doing this for a long, long time. And I, like you, I've been very blessed. I would say that 99% of the people I've dealt with and at any point in my career, even the ones where I didn't necessarily align with have always been really, really strong professionals and very good people. So I feel lucky that the small percentage that I run into every once in a while are like, man, I, you know, I, even the current company work at right now, I literally can't think of a single person that I go home with and say, I can't stand that person. Yeah. It's highly and, unusual. And it's so important, you know, when you spend so much time, time working, you know, with people, it's, it is, it's draining if you're, if you're working with an asshole. Yeah, it is. It's tough. You know, I always liked an end of a conversation, you know, on the asshole focus, no assholes. <laughs> that's, that's the theme of our, that might be the tagline for this whole, yeah, this whole I'll uh, podcast. To- I'll have to give Morton and Mariana credit for it. Please. Yeah, you please do. Well, I'll have to go see if I can get uh, your those guys on the podcast because it sounds interesting. If their company is named No Assholes, I, I I'd love to have them on the show. Yeah, they're invest their investment company. They're they're they sold a law firm. They oh, law firm public. Yeah, they took yeah. a law firm public. In Finland, they took a bunch of assholes public. <laughs> <laughs> no, these these are actually these are actually uh, the nicest you know, attorneys you could ever run across. Nicest as nice as they get anyway. That's great. That's great. Well, Todd, it's been a pleasure having you in the program. I, I've, I've got copious notes as usual and I'll digest it and, and bring a couple of highlights into the description of the podcast of things that I want people to pay attention to. And, and certainly, uh, you know, the fact that you have an anti-bio shows your humility uh, and the fact that you're willing to share it with people. Again, the lessons we can all, by the way, there's a couple underlying lessons that are interesting here. What I take away from all of these is that no matter how hard it gets, if you survive, just as you described early, you yep. can get to the other side. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, and the other takeaway is, I, I learned this when I was working 
back at CHMG in the early 2000s. I remember telling my wife a number of times when it was really, really rough. I was like, look, we, I got to make this work because I can't go back to working for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, that's been a, mo- a motivator over the years as well as, look, I, I got to figure out a way to push through this because I, I want to have to get a job. Yeah, Rich Font, I think he's episode four. Uh, the title of his podcast is There Is No B Plan. Yeah, I listened to that one. That was yeah. a good yeah. Rich is an amazing guy. And he said the same thing. He goes, I, there is no B plan, hon. Th- yeah. this, this has to work. And yeah. those are the people you want to invest in, by the way, too, right? Absolutely. They're going to figure it out. Well, Todd, again, thanks for uh, eating crow with us. We appreciate it. And <laughs> we, uh, we look forward to following up and hearing more how things go and, uh, on your Finnish financial friends. All right. Thanks for having me, Pete. Love you. You bet. Thanks for listening to another episode of Eating Crow, available on all podcast platforms. You can follow Pete on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram to join the Eating Crow community. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll see you soon.